I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch corporate zombies. No, like literal corporate zombies. I walk with the zombie. I forgot there was a pause. I'm just used to fill in the space. Next time I'll say uh, ellipses is part of the the deal, and then you uh, won't fucking interrupt me anymore. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think if you say all your punctuation out loud, I think that's probably, based on all these episodes, the only way to stop it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way to let people know that you're actually done talking, and I'll still be like, yeah, I heard you say period, motherfucker. (laughs) Semicolon, Aaron. (laughs) It's a long... Pause as I form a related thought that could be its own sentence. <laughs> How do semicolons work? Let's get into it. Um, we well, don't have enough to cover today. Yeah, we do have a lot to cover. So let's not get into it. But Pete, first off, happy Halloween. And a happy Halloween to you, Mr. Armstrong. Thank you, Mr. Moran. Boy, boy, what's the day? <laughs> <laughs> it's Halloween. Flip a coin. Go buy a Bring the fatted the... Twix bar. <laughs> Go buy a corpse from the morgue and have your way with it. So yeah, so it is it is our Halloween episode. I can't believe we've we're at number two Halloween. Uh and once again we have a uh different type of episode for you folks. Last year we did the anthology episode, which was a lot of fun. Um I think we all learned a lot. Uh, like how to cut a four-hour episode into an hour and forty-five minute <laughs> the trick one. Is none of it's important. Yeah, <laughs> you you when you when you're forced to cut down, you realize how most of what we say is inconsequential, uninteresting, uh, and not fun, except for the two of us. And sometimes not even then. So yeah, so for a special episode, we're doing three things. We're doing Resident Evil. Peter and I both played and beat the uh, original game, but more specifically, the original game remastered. Because uh, we're not we're not gonna fuck around with no tank controls. In 1996, they released the original Resident Evil, and then they remade it six years later with improved controls and improved graphics and a bunch of new content. We'll get into that in the episode proper. But uh, yeah, they we were playing the uh, HD remaster of that that came out uh, a few years later. Uh, And let me say, before we even get into it, the 2002 remake, HD remaster, uh, plays really, really fucking well. And I don't really know why you would go back to the 1996 version uh, unless you're really, really getting an itch for those PS1 graphics. Yep. Don't know why you would do that. Uh, But uh, yeah, I'd never played it. We'll talk about it uh, in the very near future. Uh, And then we also read the script for George A. Romero's take on Resident Evil when he was going to make the movie in the late 90s. Uh, And we're going to use that, both of those components, to go to our main event, which is going to be talking about the first in a currently six-part series of movies directed by the great... (laughs) This is... Just say the director. You don't need to put an adjective in there. Okay occasionally enjoyable <laughs> Paul W.S. Uh, Anderson and the original Resident Evil movie from 2002. And I, I'll say um, I had seen the movie. I had never read the script and I never really played the game. Uh, very interesting contrast in uh, in material uh, across the board. So this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. But first, we are contractually obligated to talk about how's your spooktober going, Pete? Uh, so, uh, we're going to talk about our Spooktober recaps. I was at 
24 last week, new. I'm at 29 new now with 34 total. So I've watched five in the last week. Seven total. I did a couple rewatches, including of Resident Evil. Uh, Peter, what reasonable number are you at right now? Uh, I just cracked uh, 46 uh, total. And then yep. 41 of those are new. So, okay. So that's a totally reasonable number <laughs> that you've gone to. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's reasonable. I think, I think, I'm not bothered by it. I'm not like scratching my head weirdly and my bald spot isn't getting bigger. Uh, totally cool. Uh, but since we are short on time, why don't, and you watched about 15 new movies and I watched five, why don't, I don't know, we just talk about uh, five each because, not because I feel like inferior to you in any way, but just because we're short on time. It's it's the show I care about. You put the show above everything. Uh, your ego is not in any way playing a part in this. This is just... No. So I'm going to talk about each and every movie that I watched, and you talk about the top third. <laughs> Fair Enough. And we have a couple in common, I think. So, uh, let's So, first one, uh, yeah, uh, I watched Ernest Scared Stupid. If you want to hear my thoughts on that, I would recommend listening to a podcast that I was on called, uh, I believe it's called Hey Vern. It's a podcast uh, presented and produced by uh, yours truly, the host of We Love to Watch. And Peter. <laughs> uh, yes, that is the name of it. Which is a really mean thing unless you listen to the episode and then you realize it's actually a callback to a different show. It's a callback to a different show and a different insult that I paid Aaron. Yeah. That's a real bait and switch you just did there. If you want to know yeah. your thoughts on Ernest Scared Stupid, I don't know how people can resist that enticing offer. Who wouldn't want to hear my thoughts on Ernest Scared Stupid? If you haven't been paying attention, uh, Marcus Jones, Crush Celluloid, Jean-Paul Van Damme, guest of the show, and I uh, have, a, you can save it for plugs. have a podcast called... <laughs> Hey Vern, it's a podcast. It's a limited series, the limited run, thirteen episode uh, travel through the films of uh, Ernest P. Worrell, and we had uh, Aaron on for Ernest Scared Stupid. Uh, so that was my first one, Peter. What did you watch? Number one. My number one is going to be. I just meant say the number one. You don't need to rank them. <laughs> my number one. I'm gonna, I want to talk about is a movie called A Dark Song. That is a movie that I put off because I specifically kind of thought I was gonna love it. So I watched it uh, towards the the tail end of the month, and it is one of the scariest movies I've seen in a long time. It just taps into a lot of specific fears that, of mine, especially like growing up Catholic and being very terrified of hell and the idea of like being swallowed by demons. It's getting, it's got a lot that uh, taps into me. Uh, yeah, I watched it too, actually. So that can be my number two. Uh, watch a dark song. I liked it a little less than you. It didn't really scare me all that much um, besides one scene near the end. Uh, but I liked it. I liked the bait and switch of the ending. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes I think movies like A Dark Song would have worked better outside of Spooktober. Like if I would have watched it as just a it's a it's a night and I'm going to pick my one movie and it's going to be a dark song because it's very slow and it, it's kind of showing you the process of invoking the occult. And sometimes, though, you know, those kind of really slow meandering movies, uh, I suppose if you watch them at the right time, can feel like a break from some of the more chaotic Spooktober movies you may be watching. In my case, it was – it. I felt the length a little more than I wanted to. 
I do think the the month is more forgiving for silly, stupid movies like um, Night Train to Terror than it is for like super serious movies because like yeah because it, it, it might kind of water down the impact. But this felt like a breath of fresh air um, as we were sort of approaching the end of the month. Uh, so yeah, that was my that was my number two. I'll throw out of of five. Peter, what's what's your number three? What else did you watch that you want to talk about? I really want to talk about Island of Lost Souls. I finally got around to seeing it. We did an episode on Island of Dr. Moreau as well as the... Do- the documentary about the making of Island of Dr. Moreau, the 19, 19- is it 1996 movie? The, yeah, the documentary is from a couple years ago, but yeah, the, the John Frankenheimer movies from 96. I finally got around to watching it. Island of Lost Souls is also super creepy, uh, which uh, movies of that era don't always creep me out. Sometimes I more just like them on a character level or a visual level. It is a lean, mean movie. I think it's like 70 minutes really cool little adaptation of the story it's one of the closer adaptations we've gotten so far yet still has its own surprises and the third act is obviously completely different um but yeah i I liked it quite a bit yeah it's great i watched it last year for spooktober yeah it's a fun one uh and the ending is very surprising yeah i think so too uh number four which is my favorite one that i've watched last week so in the top 20 percent (laughs) <laughs> because I watched five movies. Um, the, it's a, a little movie that I was not expecting. Uh, it kind of blew me away. So uh, the movie's Tales from the Hood. Okay. I also watched this. Yes. I was expecting – I don't know if it's from friends that were talking about it at the time, just straight false memories or like a preview I remember. But I expected this to be a comedy horror movie. I expected it to be – uh, funny, kind of cheeky, and then obviously have some, you know, kind of like the, the the Demon Knight type stuff. Like mm-hmm. a lot of those mid '90s horror movies that got released usually had, you know, didn't go necessarily for semi serious. They usually had a wink and a nod, and then you know would show some fine gross out stuff. Uh, I was not expecting uh a movie this angry and this like vibrant. And unfortunately, this relevant. Uh, it, in the same way, like, uh, XX kind of takes, like, things that affect women and makes little horror movies about them. This is, like, a movie about, like, the black experience in America as filtered through different horror segments. It's very, very powerful. It's very scary. And like I said... It feels like it was ripped out of today's headlines. I mean, the opening segment, which is like this bomb throw of an opening segment, is like about basically police roughing up a black leader for prosecuting police for killing black people. And then they end up killing them, which is like, oh, you can't get much more uh, unfortunately relevant today. So there is, of course, the depressing angle that a 27-year-old movie is that uh, vibrant. It was so, so goddamn good. And I forget. Someone who's never been on this show, um, so I won't mention his name just in case he doesn't want us to, but he is a friend of our podcast and from the film group we were in called this like uh, – it had the power to him as a uh, – as listening to a Public Enemy album for the first time. And I think that is the perfect way to describe it. Uh, I totally agree with that assessment of it. It is chillingly prescient. It has a uh, a vibrancy and a fun moving energy uh, that I really love about certain 90s horror uh, the Tales from the Crypt sort of stuff, but it has a sense of seriousness and a sense of social gravity. It is an angry movie. And rightfully so. Rightfully so, a, yep. 
and it serves its purpose. You feel the righteous indignation. Uh, I think it's like kind of an amazing technical movie. Uh, the, the camera is always where it needs to be and always goes interesting places. And um, yeah, I, I'm a big I'm a big fan of it. Clearly one of the better anthology movies, and I feel bad that I slept on it this long. Yeah, me too. Um, I, again, I was expecting goofy fun, not you know, one of the better ones that I've seen. Uh, so, Peter, you're at number four. So my next one is Mask of the Red Death, the Roger Corman, uh, Vincent Price, uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, and I absolutely loved it. It's this gorgeously filmed movie, actually by a young Nicholas Rogue, and he uh, he gives every scene a sense of flair and a sense of color and a sense of movement, and so it never feels uh, stiff the way some of these Corman movies can, because obviously he had limited sets and limited time, uh, and Vincent Price... A dude who I could never seen phone in a role gave one of his best career performances in it. Prospero is such a creepy villain. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, my number four is uh, a movie that was recommended by Brandon Lede, who I think is getting talked about now on a weekly basis on our podcast. Um, feel free to cut that out, Peter, when you're editing this. Just we don't want him to get his head too big. Like we love him <laughs> and all, but you know, there's a limit. Normally, when we say past guest names on this, it's to mock. And I think his have all been positive. So, Brandon, if you're listening, thanks for the recommendation. Fuck you. I don't Eat farts, dude. Eat, eat yeah, eat. Farts. Oh, my God. Eat them so much. Like, just have have an entire meal of farts. And then when you're like, oh, man, those farts were gross but filling, but I could still, I could still have some dessert. Mm-hmm. I, hope, I hope that dessert's a big fucking fart. <laughs> <laughs> big old creme brulee fart. You crack you crack the skin and then there's more farts in there. Right in your big dumb face. <laughs> um, so, but I, but I did like The Earth Dies Screaming, uh, which is this great like 60s uh, sci-fi horror movie. Uh, kind of, it, you know, it's it's 60 minutes long, which is great. It kind of plays like a, a longer Twilight Zone episode. There's some goofy stuff, as you always expect from those kind of B B budget uh, sci-fi horror movies, and some questionable character motivation, like uh, like there's these like killer robots walking around, and everyone just kind of is like, oh, that's weird. All right, back to our machinations. <laughs> um, but it's it's really good. So if you have a good hour to burn, want to see a nice little black and white twisty sci-fi horror uh, underseen movie, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, um, I also want to watch that, especially that runtime is just. Every movie should be 60 minutes. Yeah, that starts at a five stars. It can only go down from there. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) Were you trying to do chef fingers and then you realized it didn't translate well to a podcast and then started laughing to yourself? Uh, Yeah. Okay. We're having fun. I'm having a little bit of fun with myself. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be a better way to say that. Continue. (laughs) <laughs> uh, my uh, my next one is a uh, another classic horror from 1932. It is by uh, James Whale, the director of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. It's called The Old Dark House. This is a movie that was considered a lost movie for a period of time. And it was found by one of its appreciators, uh, sort of like hidden in the vaults. And then it's gotten um, re-released in recent years. And I'm so happy this wasn't lost to time because it is... So cool! It's it's a horror comedy, but then when it did you say the name, movie, or is this all prologue? The old dark house. Okay. <laughs> if I didn't, then I did now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I either tuned uh, out for the perfect five seconds, 
or you you were building to something that and then forgot that you hadn't gotten there yet. I sometimes build the stuff and forget to lay the groundwork. <laughs> Never hire me to build your own house. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, Island of Lost Soul has a secret Bella Lugosi that I didn't know was in it. This movie uh, actually begins with a, uh, a statement by the filmmakers basically saying, and I don't know if this was something that like people would have actually gotten confused on saying, we know this will confuse you, audience. Yes, it is the same Boris Karloff who played Frankenstein's monster in that film. Like, they, they start the movie with this, like, really cute, charming thing the saying, like, believe it, it's the same Boris Karloff that played Frankenstein is now playing this creepy dude. And uh, it is kind of shocking because, like, Boris Karloff had a lot of just physical dynamic range. And he's really creepy in this movie. Guess what time it is, Peter? Spookin' time. Kids Corner. Kids, kids, corner. It's a kid's corner where you watch movies, but don't corner kids because then you go to jail. And we got Kids Corner where I watched Monster House, which I did not realize was going to be literally a house that turns into a pretty awesome monster. Uh, yeah, I love Monster House. That, I uh, really like it. Effects, the special effect of the, like, door t- turning into, like, an actual mouth and shit is so cool. Yeah, and when he actually, like, sp- uh, grows arms, starts walking around and, like, becomes a monster roaming the town as a house. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. Uh, the it, it felt a little, like, light. Like, there wasn't much meat on that bone, but, um, you know, they did – they used every part of the chicken or something. But it, like, wasn't – what you, yeah, 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 like, not five stars. I don't know where I was going. I like your, I like your Jerry Lewis impression. It's, you know, four-star movie. It's a four-star movie. Okay. It's good. Okay. I liked it. Uh, I really, I really, really liked that movie, and it uh, was uh, way too scary for my, like, three- or four-year-old niece uh, when I watched it with her. Yeah, so I was debating showing that to my three-year-old daughter. Uh, and if I'm very. Ask me, I would have told you no. I'm very glad I didn't, uh, but I think I would have figured it out very quickly because, like, it it starts with the kids killing a person, as far as you know, in a very serious moment. Not for kids. Show them Return nah. to Oz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so that is that is Spooktober. We're going to press ahead really quick. Uh, next week, I think, is going to be a really big week. So, besides the fact that we're doing Night of the Living Dead, uh, we're recording on November 1st. So, it will be – Spooktober will be done. It will be buried. It will have risen. It will have killed us all. Uh, but we're – you know, it's the last week. So, we're probably going to have a lot of big titles to really sink our teeth into. Resident Evil Remake 2002. I had never played it. First, Peter, why don't you give a quick two to three minute rundown of what this game is for the one person listening that doesn't know exactly everything about it. 
Resident Evil is one of the biggest titles in the survival horror genre. Uh, it kind of defined most of the tropes of that genre, and then um, the genre had to evolve away from this model. It has it is a game featuring um, a mansion that you have to solve puzzles throughout and fight uh, zombies, and then later uh, more advanced monsters. That sort of like solving puzzles, getting spooked. Uh, back and forth is something the genre has held on to. The Am Amnesia of the Dark Descent is a big game that people still talk about years later that is sort of a carry down the tradition. But the part of this that's died and has not been carried on in, in any way I can think of is the fixed camera angles. F fixed camera angles, yeah. Imagine you're watching everything sort of through like high def surveillance cameras. Like you can't control the camera at all. You can just control where your character is. Um, which we'll get into whether or not that works later, because one of my key complaints kind of is about how that that uh, works against the gameplay. But if you'd like, Aaron, I can sort of go through the plot of the game real quick, and then yeah, one thing I kind of want to mention what one one of the other things this game is really known for, I think, uh, the original 1996 version is also like taking. Uh, a prod a big leap in kind of its horror storytelling, which is perfect for Spooktober. It kind of uh, it had a couple cutscenes. This didn't turn into like Dark Souls level of just read stuff to find out the story. But one thing that really struck me playing it is that really the big components of the story, besides they're zombies and they're in a mansion, are not really revealed until the last third, where most of the the kind of trickle of information is from the very occasional diary or note that you find. Uh, and the writing on these, unlike a lot of games at the time, was really, really good. There's a very famous one that kind of indicates a, a daily journal entry of someone who is slowly turning into a zombie over five or six days where it's like itchy, itchy, scratchy. Um, and yeah, he's kind of he's kind of devolving in that. That is one of the most terrifying parts of this game is some of those entries and journal entries. So besides the big monsters, besides a, a kind of a, a, a nice plot, it also really kind of told its story in a judicious way that I think is every bit as like revolutionary in its way as, as other, other games that get praised for it. Uh, you know, Half-Life and like all environmental storytelling, uh, Dark Souls with it's like no one talks and you just find out stuff from like locations and item descriptions. But Resident Evil was, was that kind of game too. And, and almost every game that you played of the PlayStation, PlayStation 2 era that was like trying to tell these complicated stories or at least um, more complicated than most video game stories that weren't uh, that weren't RPGs at the time. Kind of took big components of this. So I can even say, as someone who didn't play the Resident Evil games, but played a ton of games that uh, were were basically directly impacted uh, or direct directly inspired by Resident Evil, the Dino Crisis games, other survival horror games. I'm not even remembering, uh, but. This this kind of level of storytelling of slowly unfurling a mystery um, really feels like, if not invented here, uh, really perfected and popular popularized the specifics of how that works. 
Yeah, and this and I, that's a great point. Is that it's the progenitor, which is a pun, I guess, for Resident Evil people, but it's the progenitor of the series that sort of evolved into all sorts of different ways. Um, Resident Evil's four through six are kind of straight action games. There's even sort of like arcadey style Resident Evil games that are purely like light gun shooters. So like, they're not all like this, but the first uh, th- four, yeah, up to Code Veronica were like this. And then uh, there might be a few that we're missing, but basically the first four main entries are these fixed camera angles. It's It all has a um, similar sort of approach, just with minor variations in how you control. And so basically this, the plot of the game is pretty simple, like games that came before it. It's just that it had such a compelling universe and it has, like Aaron was mentioning, these like apocalypse logs, these notes left behind and these stories left behind that you get to read that and the, the way the environment is designed that sort of tells you uh, about a larger universe. Yeah. But the actual story is super simple, which I find really charming about it. And one, th- like, we- one thing I really want to emphasize before you get into the plot too is that we're so used to, in video games the last 15 years, finding these logs. And I really want to underline how judiciously they're used here. This is not one of those games where every other room you're finding this uh, long log or a newspaper that you have to read or a codex or fucking whole book Skyrim or whatever else that just is there to just just fill time. This is really like when you find something to read, you take the time to read it because there's probably like, I don't know. 15, 16 over a 12-hour game, but every single one adds so much flavor and backstory and humanity to what's going on that it is it is so critical to having the, the standard cutscene and and uh, and dialogue-type story-driven scenes work. And the main story is revealed to you. All of these logs are unnecessary. Um, yep. Uh, there's maybe one or two in the lab in the final segment that would let you know that Wesker is going to betray you. But I think that they're mostly unnecessary. So getting into the plot, outside of Raccoon City, which is a fictional city somewhere in the United States, Google this again. The debate is still on where it is uh, somewhere in the Midwest, though. Raccoon City, somewhere outside in the hills, there's been dog attacks. And so this STARS team is sent in to investigate. First Bravo team and now Alpha team. And you, either Jill Valentine or Chris Radfield, you get to pick who you want to play as. Chris's journey is a little tougher because he has, but he has like less inventory and a couple other he doesn't have a specific item that sort of makes his job a little tougher but we both played as jill uh and he, also, has, he has a lighter way, just so you know the way that chris's story is harder is is in ways that i don't think are interesting to me so anyways so this alpha team gets in and jill, jill valentine is our hero you're in the woods these crazy dogs show up and you find out they're sort of they're zombie dogs there are these like living dead monster dogs they chase you and your team into the into this mansion. Your team gets split up. Some of you get eaten, and it's your job, Jill, her partner, Barry, who's this big, like, bear-like man, Wesker, the team leader, to sort of split up throughout the mansion. You separately sort of investigate. You solve puzzles. You try and figure out what the deal is with this mansion. What's the deal with this T-virus that's uh, creating these monsters? And as soon as you walk in the mansion, you discover zombies are there. This is infectious disease that you have to fight off uh, or you'll turn into one of them. And as the game goes on, there's these like mutated snakes and a mutated plant. Uh, these mutated like lizard things. Fucking mutated- shark. 
hurt bug things. <laughs> and sharks, I forgot about sharks. This virus isn't just turning people into zombies, it's also manipulating and mutating uh, animals. You find out that this Umbrella Corporation, this massive corporation that has their toes and everything, are experimenting with bioweapons to sell for military contracts. So they've been up to some serious evil business to get that done and experiment them. And you find out that your team was actually not sent in to stop anything because Umbrella is so powerful. Your team was actually sent in as test subjects to test out um, these bioweapons, notably the Tyrant, which is this big, like, monstrous, muscly, like, eight-foot-tall monstrosity. You find that out because Wesker, the villain of the piece, you can tell because it has this sort of English-New England accent, um, uh, tells you that, and he uh, releases the Tyrant, gets murdered uh, by it. You murder the Tyrant, and then you escape, hopefully... With your with uh, your friend Chris Redfield, who in either game or Barry, uh, Chris Chris or Barry can also be there. Uh, Chris Redfield, the other player character, just like if you're playing as Chris, Jill, the other player character, is locked in a jail cell near the end. So, uh, you one to three of you rogue survivors get on a helicopter and fly away, and then uh, there's a shot of a zombie saying that this will continue, and indeed the series continued for many, many more entries, and it's sort of been soft rebooted recently with Resident Evil Seven. So this is a long journey. And I've heard some people say that Resident Evil Seven is the second best one. So um, some people I, I trust. But again, so one one actually thing I want to call out minor correction or minor leave out or whatever you want to call it. So Wesker is not working for Umbrella when he betrays you. He is specifically working for himself at that moment to either get rich or to um, – take the power from Umbrella, which is kind of important because of the script we're going to talk about that follows this game much closer than the eventual movie that we have. So Umbrella as the villain, uh, it's a shady background villain with a with a main villain in this game, and I'm assuming that that changes a little more later on. But I do say assuming, so I was a pretty active gamer in the PlayStation era. When this game came out, and uh, ever since, essentially, and uh, I've owned every Resident Evil game. Uh, well, I shouldn't say every. <laughs> I've owned all there's the like main. There's a guide in. There's a dead aim. There's there's some side little ones. I've owned every like main series entry. Sometimes more than once. I've never played more than an hour of a Resident Evil game. I've played, I think, all of them for about an hour. One and two, I just, I had trouble getting into back in the day. Same with three. Uh, it was that, it was the same thing where I would get stuck. This is before I I uh, would look up anything. For some reason, I don't know why, but I had this idea of like, oh, you can't look up stuff. Mainly because the internet didn't really exist to the level where you thought to go look in the internet. So if you, you didn't pay for like a $30 guide or a $20 guide. Yeah. So it's like once you got stuck in a game in like the mid to late 90s, it was probably on the internet. But again, I didn't think to look there. I was like, oh, I guess I can't play this anymore. And that happened pretty quickly in some Resident Evil games. Uh, Resident Evil 4, uh, I just... I really want to play that, but the, the there's some control stuff that just makes it impossible for me, or has made it impossible. I don't know why. The, but there's something about the aiming that just I can't get it to make sense. Maybe I need to try. Uh, maybe I need to try one of the more remasters. Maybe they'll have some more uh, friendly controls because I've I tried playing it on PS2 and then uh, something else at some point. I forget what. Resident Evil Five. I remember playing and just did not understand what to do. 
And so I quit Resident Evil 6. I played half hour and hated it and turned it off. And Resident Evil 7, I played the demo. Uh, and that one looks really good. I've only played the demo in VR, which I completed. I own 7. I've been way too scared to play it uh, fully. So that one looks awesome. What I played, I loved. I am working up the bravery. Uh, and Resident Evil Zero, even, I again, I played. I got killed by a zombie. I couldn't figure out the controls on the Wii version I bought, and I quit. So... What, what you're finding here is that I get frustrated easily at video games sometimes, but I think these these games are – even the more recent entries are trading on certain tropes of like inventory management, a certain type of control for shooting and stuff like that, that I understood back when the original Resident Evils came out. Like I played these Dino Crisis games. Uh, I think I played like Overblood or something else, like these survival horror games by Capcom. That had the same controls, the same weird puzzle system, uh, you know, the Tomb Raider games, all that stuff in my head wrapped around all that. For some reason, whether I just didn't commit to it or I had other stuff I wanted to play, the Resident Evil games didn't. And now, whatever part of my brain that understood how those puzzles worked uh, that used to operate, that part of my brain has atrophied and died and (laughs) withered away because – I used a walkthrough for more of this game than I've probably ever used a walkthrough for a game to play it in time for this show. Um, I would say at least 50% of the time I was doing puzzles that didn't make sense and just like, you know what, fuck it, I don't have time to spend an hour figuring this out or wandering around rooms trying to figure out where I was supposed to go next and would just go look something up quick. Uh, so – I. It's re- it can be really tough to play, I think, for a modern game audience because it is so much of an archaic form of game design that just doesn't doesn't really exist. Like this, this we're going to give you no direction where to go, and that's and 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 not quite a direction of what to do next. And that is buy you buy a limited inventory system that includes like key items. Not only can, if you stumble somewhere, like oh, I don't fucking know if I'm supposed to be here, but oh, look, I have the key. Let me try some of those key items I have and see if I can figure it out through that. You have to almost figure out the puzzle and then go back and get whatever key item that you think you would have needed for this puzzle and try it. And I think that that those two things without help or without any previous knowledge, which I'm guessing most people that play Resident Evil today are trading off of, is like, I remember this sort of from a kid so I could piece it all together. It's it's very difficult. I, I really I really did enjoy my first complete Resident Evil game, but I probably would have ended up in the same position I'd had so many years ago, which is quitting in frustration if I didn't have access to a guide. My history with the series is that I grew up with watching over my brother's shoulder while playing one and two, and then Code Veronica. Um, I've never seen or played three for some reason. So I have a long history with the series. Like I've been exposed to it when I was a kid. I played two a bunch, but never got very far because I would like run out of ammo and then not be able to solve puzzles like you were talking about. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's die. the other component component is the ammo. Like yeah. if you shoot too much, you just I guess you can't win the game anymore. Whereas now the games have sort of like if you're not doing too well on ammo, they'll give you a little giddy up. The games want you to finish them, which I think um, in the wash these the Resident Evil games and regular games wanting you to finish them, but just, you know, going through a little bit of trouble. 
Uh, I think that's a good thing. I don't yeah. think games should be built with this the, such rigid confines that like they can't adapt to a player. But anyway, so went on. I played four and I beat it. That was the first Resident Evil game I actually beat, though, because four is what the series uh, became. And it, it switched from these fixed camera angles to the over the shoulder camera angles that you're used to seeing in Gears of War and all sorts of basically any third person shooter. Yeah. Now. Uncharted, Tomb Raider, Crazy Taxi. Crazy Taxi, uh, that's sort of like third person, uh, right behind the shoulder style aiming where you can hit pet headshots and accuracy matters. That sort of headshot system uh, completely replaced the series and it kind of ruined five or six though because people were too good at hitting headshots and hitting shots so they started just throwing enemies at you and they became uh, a wire foo style matrix action game series five to me feels very similar to uh, dark souls 3 it sort of feels like the series that uh, i grew up with sort of betraying me uh, in a way where five actually has zombies getting guns like the zombies have evolved so much they start shooting back at you and it's like all right, wait, what game am I playing? So my, and then by six, I think six is one of the worst games I've ever played. And I played part of seven and I loved it. Seven feels like a return to a true reboot in the sense that it it is taking what people loved about the original, but admitting that the fixed camera angle stuff just doesn't work for modern audiences. And also the way the inventory system works is way more forgiving than this. But it's kind of frustrating because there was no series that I have had more interest in getting into as a video game series than Resident Evil. Same. I, I just kept trying it and I kept butting against it. Exactly. There's a reason I own all these games. Like, I kept thinking, okay, this is going to be the time that I just sit down and I force myself to understand this. So, it appealed to me because, first of all, you know, guess what? I love zombies. I love evil corporations. I love sinister plots. But I also love this idea of this long series of like interconnected game that somehow maintains a plot threads throughout the entire thing. Like that, that's very appealing. The plot turned to garbage. <laughs> well, you're ruining it, Peter. But, but regardless, <laughs> no, like I, I agree with you entirely. This big giant thing of fiction that was out there that people loved, and I just kept like slamming my head against it and bouncing off, and always thinking at some point I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, and so I'm really glad that we played it because I loved it, and I'm. I really loved everything about the game, minus the fact that I was constantly like, okay, where where the fuck am I going? But here's how I think that's going to work for me in, in future playthroughs. Just like when you beat a Souls game, and I'm sorry we're using that reference a lot, but it's, it's my favorite series of games, and Peter has a lot of experience of it. But they are also sort of interestingly designed and very kind of uh, obtuse. After you beat your first Souls game, though, I feel like the second one makes a, a lot more sense. And then the third one you play makes even more sense. Like, you're figuring out how these things are designed. As a result, everything doesn't seem like this big fucking mountain to climb. When I play my next Resident Evil game, or I revisit this game two or three years from now, I'm not going to feel like I'm pulling out my phone every 20 minutes to figure out what to do next or how this puzzle works or what inventory stuff to use. I'm going to have a better sense of the language that the game was teaching me on this first experience and being able to then take it and maybe still occasionally look at stuff, but not feel like I needed my hand held the same was true a little bit of the first Souls game I played, which was Bloodborne. I didn't I didn't have to look up stuff as much as I did uh, here, which was like my constant buddy. 
But, you know, I did have to look up, how does this work? What does this do? Where am I supposed to go? Should I be expecting a save spot here? Like, all these things, because the language of the game was so foreign to me at that point. Uh, So I really do think, um, before we kind of get into what I liked about the plot and stuff like that, I think this was a great experience in that I I enjoyed everything, but I think this is going to be the key that unlocks me being able to play future entries or other entries. Uh, Since I've played the other games extensively, but, you know, I have not beaten all of them uh, and I've have been for a bunch of years. I always understood the appeal of these games and I always uh, understood that call that they have to them. I, I think we're on the same page. The series always did call to me and it feels very special and very paramount in my mind. But uh, replaying this both gave me an appreciation for where the series' roots came from in a way that like, this is a very pure distillation of what survival horror used to be. Yeah. But yet also, if we were going to do another fixed camera angle game again, if somebody did, had the balls to do that, uh, I would want them to do that with modern considerations as well. Quick saving is one. How loading works is another. So in this game, every single time you go through a door, (laughs) there is a five second loading screen. Yeah. And I know that they can load more than that because I'm playing on a fucking PS4 and I'm playing a game from 2002. And also at different points in the games, uh, the doors get smashed down to combine areas. So I'm well aware that they're allowed, that they can have these areas run smoothly from place to place. So let's start with that five second sort of loading screen thing is like a fun throwback because the going through the door does build anticipation for the next segment, but it doesn't, there don't need to be as many doors as there are. (laughs) There might be, or maybe they can add an item that props open doors so you can like more quickly traverse the place. But my final play time in this game was 11 hours. I was 10 hours. I think that if you cut me running back and forth between inventory, yeah, uh, you know, me going back to the trunk to rifle through my inventory and be like, oh, what is this? Can, it, can this fit in there? And me going through doors, I honestly think you could shave four hours off the playtime. Mind you, those aren't fun four hours. The backtracking to go get items is never fun. So I think in, in addition to how loading works and how quick saving works, because also you get killed and have to go back to a typewriter. There's fixed save points in the game. And, you and not that game. many. Like, you have to run around if you're like, fuck, I don't want to have to do all that shit again, which is never f- doing things again in games unless you're, like, just fighting the same boss over and over. But, like, completing tasks that can't be saved that you'd have to do again to get to the point where you die is, like, never fun. It's a never yeah, going fun through minutiae is never fun. Like, sorting through – and like, whenever you leave the room – and like your inventory should be saved, that sort of thing. Yeah. You have a limited number of saves, which isn't a problem at the lower difficulties, but it is at the higher difficulties because you have ink ribbons that you have to use. And I have no idea why the fuck they did that because it's a, it's a piece of resource that's not fun to manage. It's no. fun to manage ammo and it's fun to manage health. Yeah. It's not fun to manage like, well, will I be able to save? Like you don't have any way of anticipating what is going to come next. So the idea that you like might not save just because like, you know, I might might be another typewriter in 20 feet or in two hours. Like it's nonsense. There's no way for that's not a way for you to play. And the game. why do you need to have the ink ribbons? Like there's already only like six typewriters in the game. <laughs> like yeah. you, you don't need maybe there's nine or ten. But the idea of not only do I have to have this piece of thing to remember to just and every typewriter except the first one has an item box. So you can just fucking like you're only using it to save at a certain point. But I guess between wanting to limit saves, which 
Go fuck yourself. That's always dumb. This is like a day before achievements, too. So they couldn't even say they did it so that it was like, you didn't save once. 10 Gs on Xbox Live. <laughs> yeah. There are certain mechanics to these classic games that haven't aged well. And I am trying to like think about them from a... Um, you know, what does the mechanic mean? What does the mechanic accomplish? And the mechanic at most adds on um, frustration or it adds on uh, unnecessary difficulty. So like, oh, I have to go replay an entire segment where I'm just like walking through a place I've already beaten over and over again. Like that's not necessary difficulty. That's not teaching you anything about the game. It's not teaching you anything about the world. It's not getting you new skills, you've already beaten that segment. All it's doing is just uh, keeping the hamster wheel turning to make the game seem more complicated than it is. And that's all stuff I'm glad has gone away from not only the series, but from almost all games. I agree, but I, I, I'll at least say that there are a contingent of people that feel like all of that inventory management stuff, not just health not just bullets is like why this game and the second one and the third one are like the best versions of survival horror because they there are people that love this idea of I'm going out into the world and I can only bring a certain amount of stuff and that's what makes it realistic and that's where the the scares in this game come from being feeling underpowered for the entirety and like you're barely hanging on and having two bullets left and not being sure if you're going to be able to use them I will say I don't agree with that I like difficulty in games. Again, Bloodborne, Dark Souls, some of my favorites. But I, I don't like difficulty where you can screw yourself out of victory and have to kind of restart because you you used something or you did something that you had no way of knowing at the time was going to bite you in the ass. Uh, especially the higher difficulties where stuff like ammo and health is that much lower. Like to lock yourself out of completing the game is unfair – one of the reasons why Dark Souls is so great, because they were smart enough to know, like, hey, you get to keep everything else, but your Estus is, like, if you could eventually just run out of health completely in Dark Souls, that game would be impossible. Because uh, you just you just would be like, oh, I can never get this health back, and I need health to progress, or I can't beat the game, so I guess I can't play anymore unless I start over and do better from the beginning. And that's a little bit what some of these games from this era, especially Resident Evil, did. It's like, well, if you didn't save all your bullets, I guess you're fucked. Like if, if, you, if you don't know to save your Magnum bullets for the Tyrant and you're playing on, like, normal difficulty and you don't have and you were using grenade rounds on hunters and bosses and you have you know a pistol and a few shotgun ammo i guess you can just never beat this game and that also creates its own problem which is the too good to use syndrome that happens in video games wherein you have you end the game with like 10 grenades in your pocket because you were like well there's got to be something meaner up ahead yeah well I, I had a ton left i would actually say that that syndrome probably comes a little bit from survival horror games where it trains you to never use anything because who knew when you weren't going to get it um who knew if that this boss is going to be a fakey boss and the next boss is the real one yeah this game really does though seem designed for a time when the audience would have like a game for three months and you had to get your they couldn't get your money's worth like by skyrim where it was like you have 300 hours of shit you can do or 
after you beat the game, it's open world and there's side quests and all and multiplayer and all these cool things to do. So it feels like the way they padded out a nine hour game was to add all of these things that would make you go, fuck, I guess I got to start over again. Or I guess I have to spend three hours just to find the next spot I'm supposed to go. Or I guess I need to comb the place for ammo. And that's this feels like a game that is demanding you to not just beat it, but master it like it is saying the only way you're going to beat this game is by mastering the level which may be playing areas over and over and over again till you know the best routes you know where everything is and you need to know how when to use bullets and when to not it is it is almost a game designed to teach you mastery only through hindsight which is why I think this game is going to be more fun for me, even more fun than I had now, three years from now, when I'm playing it from memory and know enough to progress, but don't remember enough where I feel like I'm, you know, have an easy out anytime I get stuck. So balancing that level of difficulty when you're both doing a time crunch for recording and also uh, when you literally don't know anything is is tough. I guess my biggest complaint in the game is going to center around uh, an addition they made to the game from the original. So there's three major additions, I would say. There's a bunch of little changes. They move items around and a bunch of boring shit. Like that's, that's stuff that's not that interesting to talk about. But the three major changes, I would say, is the entire Lisa Trevor and Garden and Tunnel section involving her. That's it's all new. It's all great. It's all new, and it's the scariest stuff in the game. Yep. It has a sense of pathos that I think is really important to horror. You kind of feel bad for some of the monsters. That's something that I, I really love. The dialogue has been re-recorded. So one thing I'll say about all three of these things, the dialogue as scripted is terrible in both the source material, Resident Evil the Game, in the George Romero uh, script, and... In the Paul W.S. Anderson movie. It's just in the W.S. Anderson movie, the dialogue is mostly boring, so it doesn't offend you as much. Yeah. Uh, in this, the dialogue is also terrible. It's really clumsy. It's not well delivered. But they, it was updated from the previous one, which was way campier and way more, like, translated from Japanese. And then uh, just fucking record it. Don't, don't read it. Just go. Yeah. The third one, which is very controversial, I will say Crimson Heads, I think, were a terrible decision. Oh, really? Uh, the original one, they just died. That's the same with 2, 3, 4, or whatever. 2, 3, Code Veronica, I guess I should say. Yeah. The massive problem is that the game now... Crimson Heads never come back again? Yeah, they need to get double Crimson Heads. They need to become Pyramid Heads. Uh, no, it creates a massive problem that it makes headshots super, super important. Yet, you're, the way the games are designed with auto-aim or you're just kind of pointing at a target, uh, makes it so you're just aiming for center of mass, no matter what. And hitting headshots is a fluke. It is very, very fucking hard to hit a headshot without a shotgun. Like we said, resources are limited, so shotguns are rare. And also, if the enemy is close, hitting an enemy's head off with a shotgun is also risky because you're letting the zombie get very, very close to you. I understand that sort of shotgun give and take, like, oh, I can take its head off right now if I let him get close enough. That's cool to me. But with the handgun, there's kind of no way to hit a headshot. I got a couple. The headshots are super, super incentivized by the game, and yet they're harder to hit than they would be in real life. There's a zombie three feet in front of you, you're aiming the gun, and then like you, you don't have that much control over where the shots are going. It creates a situation where you are just putting enemies down, these zombies down, um, they're within a period of time, um, 
these zombies will rise back up as these super, super hard to kill crimson heads. You can stop it by burning them or taking their heads off. And they needed to do something with that. And they either needed to let you actually take their heads off by letting you shoot corpses while they're down corpses are invincible to letting their head get taken off for some reason. And then they also, when you have a, when you have to go get the kerosene and the lighter that takes up two out of eight of your inventory slices, uh, two out of eight of your inventory spaces. <laughs> oh, you want to slice the inventory? Oh, we'll make a fresh right here. <laughs> do you do know in the, in the later games, there's like in Code Veronica, like at, partway through the game, they're like, ah, you've got a lot of guns. Here is another four inventory slots. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, so this game is locks you at eight. So anyways, uh, so you need to carry around kerosene and a lighter, which takes up two slots. You can only carry two uses of the kerosene yeah. in that. The kerosene uh, tanks have limited uh, limited uses, so you can only burn so many zombies even doing this running back and forth. And that combined with the fact that you can't keys don't stack in your inventory and count as a full space creates this situation where I'm just constantly just like running back and forth through empty hallways that I already cleared. So I really, I'm going to disagree. I really like the Crimson Heads uh, because I think it did exactly what the best versions of these survival horror games did, which is they make you feel scared about your limited resources or what you're going to have to do. And they, it makes you feel like you're taking a risk when you when you make a decision to, to do something or not to do something. But in a way that never felt like it was game ending. Like there were crimson heads that I missed or purposely missed, hoping that I wasn't going to come back around that way and didn't want to waste my kerosene. And when one popped up, it wasn't the end of the world. Like I may take a little damage but it wasn't it was never overwhelming or it killed me i think it got close once but like that was that's what you want in these games you want something that'll damage you but one of the few really uh fun inventory management things that i thought that i did was that i knew where at one point i knew where all the kerosene stuff was and i had to kind of decide okay i know i don't have enough to burn all the zombies that i killed right now and how many how many times do I can I walk over this zombie that I know is going to pop back up if I don't have kerosene or if I choose not to before he's going to pop up and some ended up being quick maybe because they were later in the game and some you know I would like walk around and like okay shit I still don't have kerosene I'm walking by this guy again is he going to pop up this time or not so not knowing when it was going to happen, not knowing when I, which ones were the best ones to use it on, and then it not being like a, a end game scenario where I'm going to die if I didn't decide to kill them, but just a unexpected challenge that I didn't know when was going to pop up, I thought was great. I felt like they gave you just enough kerosene. Again, of course I agree that it would just be great if you had the kerosene and the, and the lighter on you at all time. Or if, or if you just had the lighter on you at all times, and like the Chris kerosene does. took up ones, yes, or in the in the kerosene just takes up one slot, yeah, and yeah. Sorry, continue. No, no, I I agree with that. I mean, obviously, I'm never gonna the inventory stuff in here is, but is a problem. But the limited resource of the kerosene and not knowing when what was gonna pop up, I thought was a really really great touch to kind of add a an element of terror uh, and surprise because. 
it was a surprise in a way that a lot of the stuff wasn't. Like, this this game does a really good job of – and I like this part of it. When you walk into a room because you have a fixed camera angle and can't see everything, you just have to stop for a sec and are like, do I hear anything walking? Do I hear any moaning? And if I do – do I run forward? Is it coming from the left? Is it coming from the right? And there were many times where the game got me very well, where I'd be like impatiently like, okay, I've been sitting here for two minutes waiting for this fucking zombie to get over here. I'm going to walk <laughs> into the next screen. And the second I did, there it was and got me. You know, that's great. That's great moments in these games where you just have to sit and not know what's going to happen. And 90% of the time, you sit and you wait and then the zombie walks up and you shoot it and and that's just the general play. Where I loved it was those moments where I had to walk by a dead zombie body not knowing if it was going to pop up. Where a zombie appeared that I wasn't expecting because I was so focused on the one in front of me or the ones where I just got impatient of like holding my ground and a gun and the game would get me. Uh, those All those scares and all those zombie moments were what made the day-to-day run-ins with the zombies the best. So I love the Crimson Heads. They create a situation where you sometimes avoid combat, which is cool if the hallways were wider. But the problem is that with zombies is that the hallways are narrow enough that it's actually really tough to run by zombies. So, like, if it were creating situations where, like, I'm like, oh, shit, there's two zombies in this hallway. I don't feel like making my run back to kill them and then burn their bodies. And then I have to go bring the tank all the way back. Which, by the way, that, that that's like a multi-step process. You kill them. Then you have to go run to get the tank. Drop whatever you have in the trunk. Then get the kerosene in the lighter. Maybe fill up the kerosene. Drink, bring that back to the bodies. Burn the bodies. Bring the kerosene in the lighter back. Refill the kerosene on your way so that you have a full one next time and then get your items back from the trunk. And it creates a situation where you are constantly running back and forth and it adds to the bloat that I think the biggest next biggest problem is that you never know which key you're going to need next. So you're also, eh, I'm going to run, I'm going to run back and like maybe look at my inventory. And then you grab something and you're like, well, I guess this hexagon doesn't fit in this hexagon shaped hole. All right. Yeah, I mean, all anything related to the inventory management stuff, like, if you could have just kept the kerosene and the lighter on you, not a big deal. And then the, the, the challenge is the fact that there's limited kerosene. So, you're going to get your two refills and then maybe two more, and, okay, well, there's six zombies you've killed and you don't know where you're getting more kerosene. Like, that's a fun thing to have to to figure out how to do without having to do this. Well, fuck, if I walk back to get it, is the zombie going to pop up the next time I come back or am I safer just running past? Although actually now that I said that, that's pretty cool and maybe I do like that. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I agree. Uh, some of the mechanic stuff. Um, so I kind of want to move us into the plot of this game. Uh, but also to kind of talk about the stuff we like. And I want to do that in tandem with the George A. Romero script because the game and the script – that George A. Romero wrote when he was um, – are follow about I'd say like 80% of the same story, which is very interesting, uh, especially compared to what we're about to talk about with the Paul W.S. Anderson movie that just three years later they went in some wildly different directions.
why don't you, before we kind of get into the plot of the game, plot of the George A. Romero thing, we don't need to do a recap on it because we kind of just gave it. We can highlight some differences. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how this script kind of came to be? And why it didn't get made. George Romero was conscripted to do a quick 30-second ad in Japan for Resident Evil 2. After that, some of the people that were in charge of sort of reaching out and saying, like, how are we going to make a movie out of Resident Evil said, hey, he might be the right guy to adapt the script. I love that it was was an ad, not like he's George A. Romero. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's... (laughs) Oh, interesting. This 30-second ad shows that this guy might know a little something about zombie scares. <laughs> it is funny, though, because, like, I think he probably didn't get work for a bunch of years because, and, and by funny, I mean horribly tragic, that he didn't get work for a bunch of years because I think people either assumed he was dead or assumed he wouldn't take the work because he was the dude who did Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. So he's either, like, too highfalutin or too old or just, you know, not not willing to, like, get in there and, like, work on, like, d- quick and dirty productions. It's like when you're too good looking and people don't want to ask you out because they're like, he or she probably has some stuff going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know like, about that, Peter? When you're mm-hmm. too good looking? Yeah, I, I wouldn't know anything about it. Aaron, you would know all about it, though, right? I was hoping we both would, Peter. <laughs> or at least both pretend to. But now the truth has come out. I don't know what it feels like. (laughs) People ask me out all the time. That's how ugly I am. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, you ought to go out with me. You're not going to ruin my I'm ready to settle. (laughs) (laughs) So George Romero brought along his friend, Peter Grumwald, and wrote this script. Um, And it is pretty close to the original in terms of, like, broad beats. Jill is pretty close as a character. Chris is mostly close as a character, except for they threw in uh, Native American heritage. And he's not part of Stars. He's uh, he's not part of Stars. He's just Jill's boy. It was kind of the way, because obviously the Resident Evil had, you play as Jill or play as Chris. How do we play as both? They can't both be policemen at the same time. What if they're dating? Though I do like the I do like making Jill the the main uh, person who's in stars and not Chris. Like lesser movies would have said, well, yeah, Chris, obviously, and then the, his girlfriend tags along, as opposed to Jill and, and her boyfriend tagging along. Let's start with that. So I think George Romero and Stephen King. If you're not familiar with the writing of George. Or Stephen King. George Romero and Stephen King, who worked together as well, uh, had a similar flaw in their uh, liberal writing. And that's that they loved diversity so much, but I don't think they actually knew that much about how these specific uh, ethnic groups and specific sort of different people that were different from them actually ticked. So, like, they loved the idea of having, like, you know, this big, tough black guy in the movie. They're like, yeah, like, I'm putting a, I'm putting a black guy in a movie. I'm putting an Indian guy in the movie. I'm putting a, I'm putting a woman as the lead. They would do stuff like that to sort of, like, write more interesting uh, scripts and novels to, to sort of, like, spice things up because they, like, genuinely were people that, like, cared about civil rights. But the way that manifested was sometimes kind of offensive. Yeah. Uh, I do have some quotes in here. Uh, yeah, the dialogue, <laughs> the dialogues, look, it probably was a first draft. This um, is definitely a first draft. There's a ton of typos in it. Read your very embarrassing lines, I, I assume. Uh, so the dialogue is generally not great. There's stuff that's like generally bad. Like there's no I in team, Chris. And then Chris goes, 
there's no I in dead either. Oh, yeah, that was that's the one line I wrote down. <laughs> there's bad stuff like that, but there's also like, so there's a character named Rodriguez who's very much like Vasquez from Aliens, this like, yeah. you know, tough, unforgiving, like badass woman, uh, but what? she's Hispanic, so she's kind of fiery. So that's another way that the script is kind of offensive. There's like a, a fiery stereotypes. Yeah, well, that's what they're doing. So they, they are taking the, they're almost taking Aliens and combining with Resident Evil, because obviously you can't just do someone slowly wandering the mansion for a while. So the people are present with their team for most of the movie. So you kind of have a, a close squad that knows each other very well, some with some uh, ulterior motives, uh, and, and they're moving through the, the, the mansion. So it's not, not surprising they have a Vasquez because it was probably designed to yeah make a Vasquez in there because, uh, because we're doing aliens in the Resident Evil mansion. That's what a lot of it feels like. So she says, Rodriguez says – uh, speak English, hombre, as one line, which is funny because that sounds like something I would say to you, ironically. And then she, her recurring sort of joke is like that she moved around so much as like a poor kid because, you know, Hispanic must have grown up poor. Uh, she moved around so much as a poor kid that it says, so so do we live here now whenever they're stuck somewhere? Oh, yeah. And some of these things, like, it's sort of hard to gauge because, like, good actors could have made it work. They might have figured out a better version on the set. Like, you're kind of, like, picturing dialogue in your head and a lot of it doesn't come through as well on the page. It, it could have if a, if a good actor was delivering it or adding um, import. The one other big change I feel like they do in this movie, which was uh, – which I would say is a mistake – is that Umbrella and those kind of components in the game take a while to reveal themselves. Here, it's like page 20 out of a 100-page script. They're like, yeah, the Umbrella Corporation funds all this right here. And we got some bombs lying all around. We're going to use that. That's why, like, all the little um, twists are kind of laid out immediately. The only twist left is that Wesker is going to betray the group, which is taken so close from the game that if you had played the game and went here, that's not a twist. So it's not really playing much close to its hand in the way that the, the Resident Evil stuff. But one thing I do like compared to the movie that we, we did get, which we're going to talk about in a sec, is it kind of kept all of the, the big moments. Like it had has fucking zombie sharks and it has plant 42 uh and it has the tyrant all the all the monster stuff for the most part uh is still present and while it doesn't have like a giant spider it has a a giant snake instead and so you know i i like that idea of trying to adapt the game series a little closer than what we ultimately got but i'll, I'll talk a little bit about that more in a second. Peter, what do you think? Do you think that this would have ended up being so budgetary restricted that this script of like, we're going to have the giant plant and we're going to have the zombie sharks would have either suffered from like 2000 era CGI and been almost like embarrassing, un embarrassingly unwatchable or um, or do you think most of that would have caught, been cut out anyways because this was not going to get a $60 million budget with George A. Romero 
at the helm. Weirdly enough, I think that the the series, because of the movies, mind you, the movies actually had a weird effect on the series. I think that they made this the game series more actiony and more matrixy, uh, where they were not before the movies. Uh, I think that the series has grown, the franchise has grown so much in recent years. Now you could get your hundred million dollar, eighty million dollar, even like a seventy million dollar big budget action movie version of it. But I think you're right. I don't think that they would have given George the money to do this right back then. And without the big set pieces, without the big snake, without the uh, the vines and the walls and without the sharks and without all that, uh, if you cut too much of that, I think it would just be them walking around in a house shooting zombies for two hours, which could be great with a great director, but it wouldn't have spice, it wouldn't have pizzazz, and I don't think that it would be has been something that would have worked. So yeah, it's kind of in an awkward position where George's or his mouth was bigger than his stomach. So I actually think that is a perfect transition because in the version that we got, not only were all of our characters and the mansion for the most part cut out, but everything that I said would probably not make it into George Romero's version is not present in the movie that we got. So Peter, after an entire episode's worth of talking, do you want to talk about Paul W.S. Anderson's Resident Evil? Let's talk about the Paul W.S. Anderson movie. Skip alternate taglines. Uh, it's already a bulky episode. We don't have time for jokes. And also, Peter, you might not know this about us. We're not as funny as we think we are. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. Uh, this is news to me. I feel like everyone's told me that my entire life. So either I'm really funny but just think I'm like uber funny or – I grate on people after a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, the novelty starts off uh, great, I think, for a lot of people. It's and the same about... stuff every week, though, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's I think after... talk. <laughs> it's slugfest. You don't have to change the voice. That's how samey it is. <laughs> novelty is a big is a big thing. And uh, there's very few jokesters that remain funny for years and years and years. And so I don't know why we would be held to that standard. No, I Frankly, think it's unfair for people to expect us to be funny. Yeah, we, we started out big. We had our uh, delirious and now we're in our raw phase. And, uh, you know, next year we're going to be basically Nutty Professor to the clumps. And also that's where we're raking the big bucks from Squarespace and Stamps. Yeah, yeah Stamps is where the money is at, I think. Yeah, I mean, they keep going up in price. They're a better investment than gold. That's a fun stamp fact. Stamp facts. Don't invest your money in stamps. Or gold. <laughs> or Yeah, or gold. Invested in the Umbrella Corporation, which kicks off this movie. So uh, this movie starts with a scene of what? I said, what a fucking segue. Sorry. I know. Let's No, let's pause and talk about it just to prove. <laughs> All right. So usually our segues are a little clumsy. We have to be like, hey, let's talk about this now. Like, hold on. You went from joke right into synopsis in the same way the movie begins. The movie begins with talking about the Umbrella Corporation and their 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 massive uh, tentacle yeah. arms and all layers of business. No, I get it. It's like when you get a sudden erection. 
and like uh, you can't stand up right away like that was such a good transition i think it was important to stop for a sec and, and recover before we move on <laughs> no mrs wazalik i am not going to go up to the chalkboard right now yeah no and i'm sure mrs wazalik uh is listening is confused because she was your kindergarten teacher yeah she's dead <laughs> So she is oh. listening because it's spooked over, baby. Because this is what they piped out in hell. Welcome to hell. We listen to We Love to Watch on a repeat cycle. <laughs> For the the dead, uh, Halloween is and the and uh, All Souls Day is uh, a special time of year where they get to listen to uh, their adult alcoholic students uh, criticize their teaching that was done twenty years prior. Yep. No, I think that all. Checks out. That's why All Souls Day, also known as Boondock Saints 2, is hell. <laughs> uh, Dia de los Muertos, as they say. They say it. We listen. Uh, so anyways, the Umbrella Corporation uh, has has its fingers in a lot of pots. It's, it's like the Enron that just kept going and also created weird viruses, which we don't know. All those papers were shredded. Read the facts, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really want to turn this into into weird, incorrect Alex Jones type movie based conspiracy theories, but that's we'll save that. So Alex Jones' show, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Alex Jones' show. He's, he sees like a movie with like uh, like a Satanist cult, and he's like, that guy kind of looks like Obama. It's it's right there. Have you guys read the book? It's all in Nostradamus. <laughs> um, Wake up! Uh, so, uh, yeah, Slugfest is over, and now I'm g- we're going to do Alex Jones all day, and I'm not going to have a voice once again. Uh, so, anyways, Umbrella Corporation, not great. They have viruses. At the opening of the movie, you see a bunch of nice people working in, in, in what you find out later to be an underground office. It's like the Pentagon for corporations. And someone throws this virus thing. Everyone freaks out and dies. Mm-hmm. That's about it. It's a very like cold, modern office. Yep. It's very sleekly modern and metallic. It sort of lets you know what the movie's going to be like. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's very cold metallic. So then you you get to two people waking up in the bed in what is a little nod to in a mansion. They don't spend that much time in there, but they're in there. <laughs> uh, they, two minutes. Yeah, they're they're pulled out, and you're like, oh, I bet you this is Chris and Alice. Nope, new people or Chris and Jill. But nope, they're new people because this movie has no uh, no characters from the video games yet. Although I have heard they show up later. We'll talk about that in a sec. So um, these two new people uh, led by Alice, played by uh, Mia Djokovic. They they're like, like, hey, you were insulting her. I wasn't sure if it was Mila or Mia. Like if the L was a Y. <laughs> oh, no, you said so, Djokovic. <laughs> is it Yakovic? Did I how- <laughs> It's Jovovich. There's no K in the middle. <laughs> this is where I go insane from, like, played by the the lady from The Fifth Element. Cut all that yeah. other stuff out. Lilo, yeah. You know what? I've never heard her name said. I haven't met her. No one said, hi, I'm Paul W.S. Anderson. Meet my wife. And then said the name correctly. It's, sorry, never you happened. exactly what country Paul W.S. Anderson is from. Can you please say it proper? Paul. Oh, Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> is he is he from England? Yeah. Oh really? Paul W. S. Anderson. I honestly didn't know that. I would have no based not that Paul Anderson, <laughs> the shitty one, only survives <laughs> oh. on nostalgia. I'm a bit shit. Right, you remember that Sam Neil part? Yeah, Van Horizon. Yeah, that's my bread and butter, baby. <laughs> I've been dining out on that for months. <laughs> it, it, this really turned Australian very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Crikey! 
<laughs> okay, okay. Okay, shut shut the fuck up, both of us. Um, so, shut the fuck up, me. We've been doing this for two hours. Uh, so, yeah, they, they are like, hey, you're one of us to, to Alice. She's like, I don't remember you. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's that building shockwave thing that happened. No one remembers shit. It's part of security. Let's drag them down there. They're like, hey, this was a secret science lab. Come down with this military unit. Everyone disappeared. We got to figure out what happened. Uh, and then later they're like, oh, we we know what happened. It was the virus, but we got to get the antidote. They go down here. They do some investigation. They tell everyone that the reason that everyone died was not necessarily because of the virus, but because the AI that runs it killed them all because they had been exposed to the virus. So they needed to also find out why the AI that runs the the village did this. So... They kind of have two different goals, get the virus, once they find out about it, get the antidote, all that kind of stuff. So during this whole process, you find out that the the guy that Alice is with um, is actually the one who uh, put the virus everywhere. You find out that Alice was working against Umbrella to expose her and then her contact got caught, which is why her fake husband let loose the virus and tried to get a bunch of money. And then, of course, the main event, which is when they're down there, they discover the virus that the AI wanted to kill everyone over was that they reanimates dead flesh, or as you may know them from the movies, zombies. And I'll just say the set pieces really kind of start with uh, all the zombies at once right away. There's not really a trickle of like you see a zombie, they react. Uh, That happens once and then it is just like a end of a Romero movie flood of zombies that they are fighting for the rest of the movie, like this wave upon wave of, of stuff that they're trying to push back. Uh, meanwhile, they also realize that there is some some more advanced monsters. I believe it's called a, a Licker, which is not Resident Evil 1, which... Resident Evil 2 is where they got introduced. They absorb some DNA, they transform, and that was that's kind of the big bad, as opposed to the tyrant that we saw in the other two incarnations that we talked about. It's smart because they are – he's essentially taking the liquor now, which fits this movie a little bit better. And the liquor looks great, I think, uh, in this uh, because there's some I think the effects practical the effects yeah, are the great. practical part of it, uh, which is most of the combat with it. So the CGI that they do do looks like worse than the Resident Evil CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The CGI little shot isn't great, but a lot of the practical stuff Oh, yeah. Pretty... I l- love that design. They do that because the Tyrant is very similar to Nemesis, and the Nemesis is the uh, antagonist of two. Yep. Resident Evil Apocalypse. I think he didn't want to have a Tyrant and then a Nemesis movie back to back. He was planning a franchise, I think. Yep, and they teased that. So uh, the good guy um, who's with Alice, we didn't really get into their whole party. It's not important. They all die, except the one good guy who gets saves Alice gets scratched by the liquor. And at the end of the movie, Alice escapes. Everyone's captured. The scientists come in, big E.T.-like uh, protection suits. They take whatever the guy that got scratched by the liquor, his name's barely important. And they're like, he will make a good person for the nemesis program. And then Jason Isaacs is there for 30 30- not even 30 seconds, like literally a third of a second. I'm like, yes, Nemesis. I don't know if he was in any of the other movies, but he was probably supposed to be. And then Alice eventually wakes up. She's in captivity as well. And all of a sudden, no one's around and you kind of see zombies. And she wakes up out of the lab, gets up and sees newspaper clippings that say the dead walk. Walks out into Raccoon City to find it abandoned. The camera pans up in this great shot. That kind of leaves her in the middle of a destroyed street with a shotgun that she grabs out of a police car a la Resident Evil 2, as I understand it. 
you can bet there'll be a sequel, baby. <laughs> and then there was. There were many sequels. Uh, and the series just ended. Uh, supposedly, it's going to be rebooted under a different banner. Uh, James Wan has said he's going to direct it. And as a fan of the Conjuring movies, I would love that. I would love for there to be a reboot that's more of the George Romero style yeah. uh, thing. But this is the movie that we got. And this is the, the George Romero script that we got we're, are very different. Um, so we basically got two adaptations. One actually came to fruition. One did not. Uh, not, to, not to say there aren't other scripts hiding around somewhere, but this is very different from both the George Romero script and from the game. Yeah, this almost has no connection whatsoever to the game to the point that they barely needed the license. It, uh, it besides Umbrella and a virus, that I mean, there's names and touch points, but it really is just, you know, people fighting through a lab where zombies are and the hive is the hive is i think original to the movie it is I yeah I, I don't remember the hive in anything else uh any other media and the idea that the lab below the mansion is like this massive complex where people uh come in and yeah the pentagon they don't, they don't necessarily know that they're doing evil that's new. And, and this isn't even below the mansion, right? Because it's just in, it's, the, in the middle of town. It's below the mansion and also it's uh, – you can access it from town. So oh, people okay. don't live in the mansion necessarily except for a few select people. People are taking a commuter train or a computer, commuter tunnel to um, to the, the hive underground. So let me – so I saw this movie in theaters and I liked it. I uh, didn't love it but liked it. A lot of fun I thought. I saw Apocalypse in theaters, and I didn't like it at all, and I never watched the other four, although I've been itching to kind of go back and, and start over. So They get worse. Let me let me put – great. <laughs> I heard they're secret masterpieces now. Um, <laughs> anyway. And like a vulgar auteurist thing yeah, just, that's just, like saying that he's like great because he has like – a specific type of action shooting is, like, so fucking boring. I think vulgar auteurism is like, no, he made a bad movie on purpose. You just don't understand why it's good. So here's my here's my uh, thesis on this movie, Peter. Let me see what you think of this. I don't think this is a very good movie. I don't think it's a very good Resident Evil movie. What I do think it is is a very good video game movie. I think that this movie – follows the structure of a video game, maybe not the Resident Evil games, although there's components there, but it follows the structure of a video game and then has a lot of fun references, components to the way video games work. You know, key cards, maps, all these things are very important to to the way the movie goes along. Uh, assembling people, losing members of the team, uh, having puzzles, a big puzz puzzles. puzzles, having a big boss fight at the end. And in one of my favorite touches, the fact that after whenever they kill a zombie and they look around, they go, hey, where'd that body go? Which is a great nod to the fact that in video games, bodies disappear uh, yeah. after, after you kill them. Um, and that's, that's never paid off. It's just a great like little video game commentary and that where's everyone that we keep killing go? Uh, which you think is going to pay off. You think, great, that's going to be a great twist where we find out where all these people go. Nope, they're just disappearing like a video game. So I think I think this movie is a good three, three and a half star movie, but I think where it excels is like adapting the concept of a video game with some Resident Evil components on it. But I don't think it's that great of a movie and I don't think it's a, a good Resident Evil 
I agree. It's a terrible Resident Evil movie. Uh, the fact that there's none of the characters and also there doesn't generally expand the lore and yet it wants to hint at the lore is kind of more frustrating than anything. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it, it, it mostly is its own thing, but then at the, in the third act at a certain point, they're like, hey, let's reference larger stuff from the games. And you're like, well, when you do give us that larger stuff, you're not going to give us anything like the game. So why are you bothering? Yeah. Um, but I do agree that it does feel very much like a game. I wish that there was more puzzle solving, like almost an Indiana Jones-esque. Or I saw a movie, movie recently that I really appreciated but didn't love that's similar to this called As Above, So Below. Have not seen it. Uh, it feels like, imagine a found footage horror movie, but like with the lead character as sort of a Tomb Raider or like a female Indiana Jones. Okay. Um, where she's like solving puzzles to help get them out of this fucked up tomb. I would have loved stuff like that to have been implemented more, but there is like a lot of deadly traps and yeah, there's a final boss. Like I, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think it's like a very okay zombie movie with a cool sense of atmosphere i think this like cold metallic sterile corporate war underworld yeah it's like it's a really cool atmosphere that i don't think you see in every every movie and especially not for the duration of the movie you might see it for about five ten minutes yeah it feels like 2002 which probably why i liked it even more in 2002 than i did now although i'm still positive on it is that first of all it didn't have the zombie resurgence yet like zombie movies were pretty rare we were so hungry, dude. We, we were very hungry. So much so, I would say, we would probably eat a zombie movie's brain. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. There just weren't that many. And also, so the idea of zombies work, you know, being being taken over this, like, super corporate America office space type structure was, was appealing and novel. And so I really did like it back in 2002, but if you see like the 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 way that that's kind of flooded to the mainstream, I think just having a zombie movie isn't enough to be a novelty or compelling enough to want to watch a movie as it was 15 years ago when there was a dearth of it, leaving out so many of the other components that make Resident Evil interesting, the monsters and the mutated animals and all that kind of stuff for like one at the end. It's almost like a retroactive mistake. Like the makers of this movie couldn't have known that zombies weren't going to be enough 15 years later. But having played the game, having read George A. Romero's script and then seeing the movie, the thing that was really missing for me was like, oh, yeah, zombies, great. I, where I want the monsters. Where the where are the monsters? Which yeah would have spiced things up a little bit. The weird thing about this movie is there's not that many great action sequences. No, it's played very much as a horror movie, and then there's a few moments where Alice, who's our new protagonist, and you know what Alice is referencing, right? Um, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, it's there's a Red Queen and there's oh, all yeah. these like there's all these really surface level stupid comparisons that like especially make you be like, wait, why didn't they just have Jill? I did look ahead though, and it seems like every major character from a Resident Evil game shows up in these movies at some point, but again, I'm speaking from such a point of ignorance that A, I don't know most of them besides reputation because I haven't played most of the games, and I couldn't tell you how how they show up because they don't appear to, in my quick glance at Wikipedia, start showing up till the third movie besides Nemesis. In Resident Evil, uh, how do you feel about the way they depict Jill um, in her dress and her character in Resident Evil the game? Oh, 
I know exactly what you're saying because she is just a military badass, same uniform as everyone else, as opposed to this movie, which is like, give her like a skimpy cocktail dress. Okay, they do that in Resident Evil 3. So this game series, before the movies were even doing it, the game series was also sexualizing all the women in the series. And from like 3 onward, every woman is being like, in sort of the way that like, I think gets Japanese games a bad rap is in that like, there's just like women in skimpy clothing and it's really fucking embarrassing uh, to anybody over the age of 17. They take these characters to have a sense of dignity uh, in the games. And then the games and the movies both just like, let's put them in a sexy dress. They're not just, they're, yeah. it's like that fucking video from uh, Jackie Brown that, uh, that that he's watching where it's just like women in bikinis firing AK-47s. Like that's essentially all Jill is in the movies when she pops up. And it's really frustrating. Uh, yeah, that is... Because Jill is such a good character in, in the first one and the fact that, like, George A. Romero kind of did what a lot of us do, which is, do I play as Jill and Chris? And Romero said Jill for his movie adaptation and then just make her the badass military person that you see in the game. So the fact that the the games went that direction and uh, the movies couldn't even take our same protagonist, but then was like, no, 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 fuck Jill, Alice. But give her that skimpy red dress from Resident Evil 3 <laughs> is, uh, I mean, I guess it matches all the sophistication I would assume of Paul W.S. Anderson. I'll jump in. I like Mortal Kombat. I like Event Horizon. I like this movie. There's probably a couple more that he's made that I've liked. I mean, he's, I really like Soldier. I'm maybe the only person on the planet who does. I, I've not seen Soldier. I mean, it's got Kurt Russell. There's like five of us. It's Kurt Russell not being charming. It's Kurt Russell doing a straight-faced murder killer uh-huh. which is like uh sequel to blade runner sequel to blade runner it is in the blade that's runner true universe. yeah i kind of even like uh alien versus predator i don't like alien versus predator but i do appreciate that it got uh it got to give us those that imagery i like the games so much that when i saw the movie i was like just adapt the games i never i never played the games but i mean it's not again I think Paul W.S. Anderson, the best thing you can say about his movies is that his movies are, like, enjoyable. They're not usually that good, and he definitely hasn't made any masterpieces, but, like, he's like, oh, that's a good, like, fun way to spend an hour and a half. That's Paul W.S. Anderson at his best. That this movie has some tension, it has some decent sense of direction, and notably spacing. Where characters are, where the threat is, how they're going to come together. Uh, so did you know that Paul W.S. Anderson and Mila Jovovich are married? I do. Um, and before that, she was married to uh, – uh, what's his face? The Fifth Element and Professional Guy. She was married to Luke Besson. She was, yeah. And because it was really gross because they started dating when she was like 14. Oh, that's really, really gross. I hate that. She's been married to – they have kids together, Paul W.S. Anderson. So, like, weirdly, my favorite part of the series as it goes on because I find the movies mostly unwatchable. He dropped out for two and three and then came back for four, five, six. I find the idea that he and his wife are, like, bonding through making her look like a badass on screen, like, kind of charming. And it makes it a little less creepy that she's, like, mostly wearing leather and very little else in a lot of these movies. It makes it a little bit more charming to know that, like, him and his wife are working on this together. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like, this is, like, how they not only work, but bond. That that part of it is, is like, kind of cute to me. The movies get unwatchable to me. There's, like, no sense of space 
Uh, they have this really gross, like, all-digital aesthetic that's, like, yeah. inhuman. I really hate it. She's really great in this movie. Like She's, she's... great in all of them. The dialogue yeah. is always terrible. She's always, but she's always, like, up to ga- up to the game. Yeah, I just, I wish this movie had a better sense of pace. Because not many movies start with the zombie horde. And if you're going to start with the zombie horde, you need to have other things later on. And this movie doesn't, really, besides the liquor. Like, you see the zombies, and then the next time you see the zombies, they are, like, flowing into that storage area like a river. Which I, I do like that jump scare. There's a jump scare where, you know, they get all their key cards out. They're like, what's the password? I forget. And they're like, uh, 427234. And they open the door, and then there's, like, a, a sea of zombies coming at them immediately, which is a great moment. But you can't start with a sea of zombies as your zombies, like... That's that's where that's where your movie needs to go from a pace standpoint. This isn't like 28 days later where every time you see a zombie there's like a giant swarm of them running at you at top speed. This is just why are why are all these zombies in these these every room they go into and then the rest of the building is empty. I think you have a great point and I think they start off really well which is they have the scene that most zombie movies neglect which is when michelle rodriguez discovers the lab attendant and she goes like jd we got a survivor and she walks up to the person to like comfort them and like get some information out of them get some intel for the mission and then that survivor bites her and then she like is hesitating about shooting them that is a scene that like zombie shows don't do anymore they just want to jump straight to the these are just things we can kill it doesn't matter like you know these are just targets it, most movies just kind of jump to that. This, this like, at least has that moment. And then I don't think it has many, very many great action scenes where it uses the idea of, like, zombies coming towards you as, like, a, um, a threat to contend with. It's mostly something they run away from or just, like, throw bullets at and it makes – it's ineffectual. And I agree with you. It's just, like, them throwing bullets at a horde over and over again is, like, not that great of – a mechanic for a horror movie. Yeah, it, and some of that feels kind of kitschy and fun. Uh, and that goes throughout all three movies, all three of the, or sorry, all three of these uh, Resident Evil versions. Both the game, uh, this, the Romero script, and uh, this movie all have that discovering what zombies are and how they work. Like, you need to shoot them in the head. Um, everyone, you know, they have a great line in this movie where it's, I shot that guy like five times. I'm running out of bullets. Uh, and he's still not down. Uh, great reference to the game. Again, mm-hmm. it works well as a video game movie uh, to have those little components in there. And they don't do that anymore. Now it is just like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a zombie. Although the Romero script does have a cute moment where when they – like 40 pages in where they, they finally realize that these are zombies, uh, someone goes, like that movie, Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> it is all right there's parts in the script that are kind of cute and like the fact that george says raccoon city is in pennsylvania yeah you're like you're like oh george you're adorable uh yeah i i think it's i think it's cute though for him to like because his own movie was the cultural touch point about zombies so to use it as a reference point in a another zombie movie he was going to do is is great Oh, yeah. I mean, especially as it's something that, like, didn't actually go to production. Like, it's not that grown-worthy because you're just like, oh, this is just something cute that George George made his assistant play the video game for him, <laughs> recorded it on video, and then he rewatched obsessively, watched the video. That's why, like, the main monsters are in there because George, George was probably so fucking bored watching someone else play this game. And then he's like, 
hey, wait a minute, there's a big snake. I'll put that in there. Well, especially to circle back because he was probably like, man, is this entire game just my assistant not knowing where to go? <laughs> did, did the assistant get the guide? Was it like, look, after I recorded for 15 hours of me not knowing how to manage my inventory, I'm getting this guide before I give the tape to George. You know that dumb thing that's happening now where, like, people are criticizing game reviewers for not being good enough at games on Let's Play videos? It's like that, like, he's, except for he's like, so do I have to be really good or do I have to fuck up sometimes? Like, what, how should I play the video for George? Because, like, George at that point was, I don't know, in his 60s? Yeah, no, I I definitely love this trend. It goes for movies, too, where if a reviewer doesn't like the game, it's because they weren't good enough at it. And if a reviewer doesn't like a movie, it's because they did understand it. I definitely love that that is a great way to <laughs> kind of wrap yourself in a weird denial cloth that someone <laughs> out there somewhere could have possibly – with the same skill or knowledge that you have, could just arrive at a different opinion about a fucking movie or video game. <laughs> like, work on this phrase. Work on this phrase. That criticism didn't bother me. Yeah. Or it doesn't matter. No, no one's reviewing your baby. Like, <laughs> look, I didn't think it was very cute. River. It's got a 30 on Metacritic. Yeah. That baby shit everywhere. It's like, you just didn't see him when he was being funny. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, not looking good for you, Tyler. You've got five threes on Rape My Baby. Oh, not great, Tyler. Get it together. Get it together, Tyler. You're never going to get a sequel. <laughs> wow, wow. You don't even babble cute. Oh, great. Another fetch quest. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get the bottle and the formula again. Why can't I just carry it all on me at all times? Uh, I hate when you have an AI companion. <laughs> yeah, Aaron, because you only have eight slots of inventory on your person at the moment right now. I mean, I don't even think I have that much, so that part is realistic. Uh, my pa the, the shorts I'm wearing right now don't even have pockets, so I have zero slots of inventory. I guess I have two because I have two hands. They don't have front pockets? Uh, no, they're like basketball or I guess... Oh, okay. Not like going out and like living in the world shorts. No, I'm not trying to like reduce drag while I'm walking to get ice cream. I get it. I mean, I'm pretty... I'm wearing pajama pants and a sweatshirt. So like I'm in... I'm not going to say Pocket City, but I got... I got I'm like in Pocketville. Yeah. I got, I got like that front pocket that no one ever uses on the sweatshirt. Pocket Monster. Yeah, you're a Pocket Monster. I think that's a reference to a toy? Yeah, a, a Pokemon. Oh, okay. Did you uh, not know Pokemon was Pocket Monster? No. Okay, so, so we can sit down. Uh, so this week, we're going to be talking about Pokemon Yellow from we, Game we, Boy Color. So many, so many, now over a year ago, we talked about how you were playing Pokemon Go, and I literally didn't understand any of it, and it had been explained to me so many times. I wasn't so. saying that. I was saying you should Pokemon Go to the polls. I did, Peter. It didn't help. <laughs> did help. I'm never voting again. <laughs> uh, okay, so where were we? Um, I think we can go to some final thoughts on a lot of this stuff because there's not too much to talk about. The dialogue isn't great in the movie. It does sound sometimes like the dialogue was dubbed from Italian. It's yeah. Like, they don't even have me on file yet. And you're like, wait, wait. <laughs> 
did that come out of the same mouth that you're using in the scene? Like, there are so many good moments, but unless this becomes a podcast where I think sometimes it does, where it's like, where it turns into like a little version of the Chris Farley show, where it's just like, hey, remember that where they go in the laser place? And, <laughs> okay, uh, can we talk about that scene? <laughs> but that's so all it's going to be. Is it's like, besides the bad CGI, I love that no one gets saved and it keeps setting it up that people are going to get saved. Uh, Peter, you remember that part? Peter, do you remember that part? I remember that part. That was uh, awesome. We remember it. Um, so the laser thing I do think is great because it kind of hints at how cruel the Red Queen and Umbrella are. People say, like, why didn't they just start with the grid? I'm like, because it's not a robotic organization. Umbrella is a cartoon villain as a corporation. Umbrella yeah. does crazy shit that they didn't have to do just because, like, let's see what happens. <laughs> it's like vault Tech from Fallout. They don't particularly care as long as they make enough money and the guys at the top get a raise. And nobody that gets fucked over by an Umbrella plan realizes that they're getting fucked over. They're yeah. all like, oh, I saw what happened to Billy. <laughs> Fucking dumbass. He should have gotten that raise. I'm really itchy right now. Why am I so itchy? I also, I really like the idea that this scene in this horror movie that wasn't seen by that many has enough people that are complaining about a laser scene in it that you felt the need to address it. I don't go on those IMDb forms, <laughs> but I don't not believe you. I believe that there are people who are like, <laughs> what? what? If you're going to design a laser death trap, do it a little better. <laughs> you think the guy with the $5,000 laser death trap is going to Come stop. on. Come on. Um, yeah. Or maybe, hey, internet straw man, maybe the fact the other lasers need to charge up more. Yeah. Or maybe the grid system is lazy. Yeah. You know what it is? It's like when you're making waffles and you like have to wait for the iron to, to heat up. Not me. And if you don't wait for the iron to heat up, you're just going to get, like, the center really well done, and then the outside is going to be really soft. So it's like, okay, we got to get the whole grid going. Get the whole grid going. Uh, actually, here's the best way to do that, Peter, so you don't have to worry about the center being soft. Still have a waffle maker. Throw egos in there. You're oh, going nice. to get surprise indentations where you don't expect them. It's going to taste pretty good. It'll totally make me feel good for having a waffle iron. Uh, I like the idea that I will no longer have uh, the little nice little squares for the syrup to sort of form reservoirs in. I like the idea that it'll now just be this like a uh, crushed mass. Yeah. Um, Here's an idea. Eat out. <laughs> go to Outback Steakhouse. Yeah. Oh, waffles. man. A blooming onion. <laughs> oh, Paul W.S. Anderson's favorite lunch. <laughs> Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> British dash, dash Australian person, depending on where this accent ends. Yes. He shoots all the Outback commercials. Don't look it up. Who goes to Outback Steakhouse for waffles? Roy, I directed it. Resident Evil. <laughs> One, four, five, and six. I directed Resident Evil. Decided it was kind of shit. Gonna need more onions. <laughs> <laughs> Went and made a couple more movies. Now I've got blooming onions. Toured with the Beatles, I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the Beatles' reign. Uh, the cover group. 
<laughs> Everyone's got something to hide except the Umbrella Corporation. <laughs> so they, they, they basically make it so Alice is a superhero. So this is the only interesting Resident Evil movie because Alice has not fully transcended into this like flippy floppy CGI superhero where she actually has to like do stunts and tricks to like take out like she trained for months to do the dog kicking stunt. So the dog scene is great. It is great. The dogs show up. I think the makeup on the dogs and the Dobermans is great. Um, the way it's it's one of the best moments that kind of recalls, again, not the exact moment of dogs from the game, but like the fear that even this idea of these dogs from your knowledge of playing the game invokes. And then I think they ruin it with the dumbest fucking kick in the world. Like that, that ending, I think, is terrible. But everything else in that scene is great. And it's great because it has like a nice little musical cue. I actually quite like the score, and but it, it, it's it's sort of this fun like scene where she becomes a superhero and uh, she becomes a superhero in this sort of Matrixy way. But like more, sort of like Matrix Revolutions, eventually watching a, a somebody become God and then have to hang out as God for a little bit is very boring. So the movies get very boring as, as she gets less and less human. I can't believe you – I don't even want to get into it, but I can't believe you like the score to this movie. This is like – I had a note where this is like Ghost of Mars level score, which I guess, if I remember correctly, you didn't mind as much as Marcus and I did. No, the Ghost of Mars score was bad and offensive. The ghost, the score in this, um, the like little musical cues and stuff are pretty cool. I'll use a musical cue from the movie at the end of this. The more metallic, cold, electronic stuff. I'm not talking about the metal stuff. That stuff. Oh yeah, the metal stuff's stuff. terrible. That's the metal that's what's garbage, out. obviously. Okay, thank you. We can continue with the podcast. They make uh, Alice less of a human being. They lose all sense of atmosphere, lose all sense of gravity with the CGI, and the series just becomes this roving monstrosity. And how many uh, have you seen? The last time it's it's how many are there? Six. Yeah, I probably seen like four. Okay, and then I saw part of final chapter and then turned it off. Interesting. I have trouble sitting through these movies. They make me very uncomfortable. Um, at some point, I, I'm kind of – I think one, one thing I'm going to do post-Booktober, besides some uh, 2017 catch-up for a lot – there's a lot of good movies that came out in October uh, that I'm finally going to get a chance to watch, uh, like War of the Planet of the Apes and Spider-Man Homecoming and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm a purist and I'm saving myself for November. A little tolerance but, break? Yeah, but the, the other thing I'm thinking about doing is – so I was kind of in the middle of a Fast and the Furious watch for the first time, as I think I mentioned. I have two left on that. I like this idea of kind of just keep dipping into these longer series that I haven't seen many or any of. So think about a Resident Evil one next, maybe Friday the 13th. Uh, maybe something not horror, but horror usually has the longer series. So, um, I'm you know, I'm, I'll, I'll come back maybe and... Give some give some Resident Evil type impressions because I do plan on in the near future finally uh, finally giving those other four movies a shot. And worst case scenario, I guess uh, I won't like them. <laughs> <laughs> I had nowhere to go. It's, I'm I'm tired. Yeah, I guess that is the that is absolutely the worst thing that could happen there is that I don't care for them. I think that they have some interesting sort of places to go, but they don't ultimately do anything interesting with it. But yeah, so. Um, what do you let's wrap this up what do you think about the series and what do you what are your hopes for what happens to the series next my thoughts on the series now kind of having been immersed for a week playing resident evil reading a resident evil script watching the first resident evil movie i have been thinking about resident evil nonstop. 
might try to play some of the the PlayStation era games like two and three. I'm thinking maybe I go back to zero. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm kind of I'm kind of really into this idea of watching the series sooner than later. Like it's kind of it's it's almost funny because nothing that I read or watched was a slam dunk for me. I liked the game quite a bit. It wasn't like a five out of five game. Um, I thought the movie was a good way to spend an hour and a half, but it's not a great movie. And the script was an interesting read, but was nothing like to write home about. Uh, it was just an interesting take on the material from a, from a horror master. But what I'm left with after all of this is a burning desire for to know more of the story, whether that's in the game or in the movies or to just, just play more or to try more. And so I think that's almost one of the, biggest compliments that you can pay uh, a movie or a video game is that sure it wasn't a slam dunk but it did really whet my appetite and it did leave me wanting more like i want to do what i wanted to do for 15 years now and really play some of those games and i think that this the playing the game was an entry point for me uh, getting back into the series and having something to compare against from the games was very interesting to me. So I'm interested in watching more of the movies and from a future perspective, I mean, I have so much resonant evil material potentially in front of me that it's even hard for me to say like what I want next, because I literally have hundreds of hours of stuff if I want to dig into it. But I guess what I would like from a movie perspective, even only having uh, seen the first one recently and the second one is like a distant memory. I guess I would like, uh, I'd like an adaptation of, of Resident Evil that follows uh, more closely to, to Romero's script and more close, closely to the source material. I guess I would like to see the version of Resident Evil that doesn't just borrow some key points and makes its own movie, but, uh, but the, mo- the version that actually adapts the game into a movie. I agree, and I hope that if the James Wan thing ever happens, he has such a great grasp of character and space that I would love for him to make a sort of haunted house movie where characters are both engaging in combat and they're navigating puzzles, because both of those are really cool to watch people unfold. Like, there's no there's no secret why people love the Indiana Jones movies, and it's because, like, you love watching your heroes and sort of solving puzzles with them in your mind. Like, and it would be fun to watch somebody do that in a horror setting and somebody who I think grasps space really well. Um, yeah. I will say, I think we're in a really good place right now for the series because of Resident Evil 7. Resident Evil 7, it was, I played part of it. I'm going to keep playing it. I So far, I'm really impressed. Resident Evil 7 was something that everybody thought Capcom would never do, which is peel back from the ridiculous Matrix bullshit that they'd done previously and bring everything back to its roots. Vulnerability and you being in a space that you're gradually unlocking more and more of and solving puzzles and having these boss fights that like genuinely make you think and terrify you. And I think Resident Evil 7 is like a really great way for the series to continue going forward, even though uh, from what I've seen, it's not really a zombie game. It does have like drone kind of guys in it, but it's not really a zombie game. The the movie series was such a disappointment for me on a personal level because I've always been really invested in the series. And I think I was a little negative. What about on a professional level? On a professional level? Did it affect your job at all? Paul W.S. Anderson... Uh, said, uh, you can play Alice. I don't want my wife to do this role. And I said, no, 
you know, I, I'm really busy right now. I can't play Alice. And so he he let her have the role, and it's really a... And the rest is history. Um, or her story. I, 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 you know, I'm working, but, like, I'm not making, like, Resident Evil money. Um, why did I say no? It could have been Alice. You know what? I don't say this that often, Peter, but I think you were a huge fucking dumb idiot for not taking that. <laughs> Like, I've known about that forever, but I've never had a chance to just rub it right in your fucking stupid face as I have right now, which is, yeah, I'd like, I've always been like, no, it's a really good decision. You met your girlfriend. You got a nice career. You got a nice thing going with the podcast to me, but I'm going to level with you right now as long as you brought it up. Just the fucking dumbest decision a human being could make. The thing about people fucking up once in a lifetime decisions is that it is helpful to rub it in their face that they fucked up because they will definitely have a second in a lifetime situation pop up and you want them to know not to fuck this one up. Do you want people to be honest? You afraid of the truth? <laughs> I thought being friends means being honest. Just say whatever like shit pops into my mind about your failings as a person. <laughs> and then just letting you have it. Putting you on blast. Like this, is moved. this is the real world we love to watch. Um, we're going to stop being polite and start being real. What happens when two podcast hosts who run out of stuff to talk about start being real? <laughs> All right. So what I'll say, uh, final thought, is that, so yeah, the games are in a good place. I'm hopeful for the movie series. I would recommend, Aaron, you play more. Also, I've heard that's, that they're going to remake uh, two. Resident Evil 2. So I might do zero. I might do, even though I know zero is kind of uh, not loved, I am very interested in doing uh, a Resident Evil style game, like the original four games, uh, fixed perspective, limited inventory, all that stuff, without a guide, which I will obviously have uh, more patience to do, uh, not having to not having to meet a deadline for a podcast. So, and zero has a remaster with uh, better controls and all that stuff that's on playstation 4 so i i think i'm going to do that next but i am i am uh interested to try out number of the the two remake but i guess that's been that was announced two years ago so who the fuck knows when that's coming out yeah that might never happen yeah I, I, i'm actually feeling pretty optimistic about the series even though i had some i have some problems with the first game i still love it, it, it it's still a game that like I think about for months afterwards and like it's yeah it is a standard bearer the one thing I didn't say is I think the best classic survival horror game of this era is actually Silent Hill 2 I played that so I don't know why I kept referring to Dino Crisis as like the touch point I think because it was made by Capcom although I think Silent Hill might have been too but I did play Silent I think it's so similar that me being able to get into one wholeheartedly, Dino Crisis 1 and 2, and not Resident Evil was even weird to me at the time. But yeah, I played like the Silent Hill games are another good touch point of like, I played those. Those all made sense to me. Silent Hill 2's combat and its sense of character and all that I think is actually the best survival horror game, but I still have a lot of affection for Resident Evil 1. So uh, this is kind of like our, our, this is welcoming us into our fall of zombies. Like we're yeah, this is two months of zombie. We've done two months of zombie stuff. Like we're doing um, October is, is three out of four of the movies are actually zombie movies. And then we're doing three out of four ain't bad in November. Yeah, this could not be a perfect like middle episode between Spooktober month and November because we did a George A. Romero script. And we're going to be doing a couple of George A. Romero movies that you may have heard of before we talk about what's coming in November. Peter, one final question. 
Resident Evil. Pun? Uh, 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 no. <laughs> I don't even... Because it's a residence in the first one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Resident Evil. Yeah, I guess it's a pun. Do you think it was purposeful? I think it was, uh, uh somebody was who, who kind of spoke English came up with the title. Or is it not a pun at all because they were purposely referring to the residents as where the evil resides? They're like, this resident is evil. Yeah. Wouldn't it, yeah, so, but wouldn't it be residents evil? Well, but there's residents there who yeah, are evil. I mean, honestly. Wouldn't it be residents evil? But the residents isn't the evil part. It's the residents that live there. I think regardless, it has to have, uh, you know, a, a S or a C ending. It has to be either a residence because the residence is evil or residence with an S because there's multiple residents at this place. There's not like one really bad resident. So you think not a pun at all, just a slightly inaccurate Japanese translation of uh, people that live in a house that are evil. Yeah, I definitely don't think that, uh, you know, in an era where Metal Gear Solid became one of the biggest franchises that maybe we would get a, a horror title that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let me ask you another one. Silent Hill. Loud? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so next month. At times, yes. <laughs> so next month, we are doing the four dead movies, living dead movies, daytime dead movies, we're doing the Dead series by George Romero. This was kind of an ad that we did in July after uh, he passed away. Uh, and obviously, I am so excited to both revisit these and talk about them. We have some great guests. So uh, the first week, uh, we're doing uh, Night of the Living Dead, which will be joined by Ethan Warren. Uh, and then we're doing Dawn of the Dead with Salim Garami. We're very excited to have on the show. First time guest, as is Ethan. And then Peter, what are what are the back half here? We're going to wrap up the month with the next two dead movies. The Day of the Dead with uh, Dustin and Adam Kosky. The Kosky Brothers. Uh, then we're going to end the month with The Land of the Dead, which is purposefully just Aaron and I, because I don't want a meanie on the show who hates Land of the Dead. Yeah, we both really like it. Not as much as the other three, but it's pretty good. And we'll probably be asking all of our guests. So Ethan Warren's kind of a weird get because he's never seen seen any of these movies so there's a good chance he will not have watched the other three but i'll definitely be asking salim and the koski brothers what they think of the other ones as well and then we can wrap up with land uh final question for you peter uh koski brothers who's the goofus who's the gallant (laughs) be like gallant adam not like goofus dustin yeah, that's that's how I would have put it too. So, uh, so thank you so much for joining us for for Slugfest for the special Halloween episode. We hope you guys had a great trick or treating Halloween party. I hope you watched a ton of horror movies this month. Um, again, we're still going to be next week talking a little bit about our final Spooktober week uh, and seeing what kind of movies that Ethan was able to watch, and then we'll uh, we'll return to our normal goofing around segments, which my guess is. For the first recording uh, in for Dawn of the Dead, when we have to do them again for the first time, Peter, we're going to totally forget about it until we have to record, because that's what happened last year. Uh, yes. Um, because we have the memory goof-em of around, goof around, goof around. If you want the goof around, they're coming back. If you don't, get your fast forward button. Is there maybe like a spooky way we can end things? Well, I'll tell you what. So my daughter likes dressing up like a ghost. Ghost? She actually she puts a sheet over her head and she tries to scare me and she goes like this. Moo. 
And when I've told her many times, it's not moo, it's boo, she lets me know, no, dad, it's moo. So to all of you out there tonight, moo. (laughs) That is adorable. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website wltwpodcast.com leave us a comment tell us we're doing a good job only tell us we're doing a good job we're so sensitive we're sensitive boys we're soft boys and uh if you'd like to help other people if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine fine program that we produce at no cost We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. It's like it's like you buy a car, sign all the paperwork, drive it home, and a week later you get a car from the dealership. Like, hey, in case anyone told you differently, it's got Bluetooth. Or you're like, they spent the entire commercial showing that the trunk opens automatically. <laughs> like, that's the best feature of this car. We got trunks. <laughs> we got junk in the trunk. <laughs> I got my golf clubs. I've got an overnight bag. Oh, and who's this? Cisco. <laughs> Baby movie trunk, trunk, trunk. Dumps like what? What? Let me say it again. Let me see that Kia Sorento. <laughs> that Kia Baby. Sorento. It's Sorento. That's so, so Sorento. <laughs> Did we just, are we madmen now? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, in 1989. <laughs> well, no, now like they have, they have the one guy that like lost American Idol singing about Dr. Pepper. So you got to bring those guys back. Now's the time for That's late true. 90s one hit wonders. Well, also, MC Hammer now is doing like stapler commercials or something. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Poor MC. That, that, marble, that marble floor was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> That's what got him. That was his entire behind the music. He spent like $40 million on a marble floor.